Well, good morning. Starting to be a hot day in the country in Texas, isn't it already? You know, you don't see 90 degrees till the end of July in Connecticut and that on a rare year. So it's kind of nice to come back where you're going to thaw out. It'll probably take me three years to thaw out after some of those winters up there. Before we begin this morning, let's make sure we're in fellowship. We need to make sure that uh, we're in right relationship with the Holy Spirit for His teaching ministry to have an efficacious value in our spiritual life and for His sanctifying work to uh, develop as He produces spiritual growth in us through the application of doctrine. So we always begin with a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary to simply admit or acknowledge uh, known sin in your life to God the Father and at that instant you're forgiven restored to fellowship so that you can resume your spiritual advance. So let's bow our heads together and open in prayer. Father, again, we thank you that we can gather together this morning just to uh, learn your word, to be refreshed in our uh, spiritual life by the teaching of your word, that God the Holy Spirit will use it to give us a greater understanding of who you are, what you've accomplished for us, not only at the cross, but in the entire panorama of salvation as you are working to bring about a resolution to the sin problem that was initiated by Adam's fall and is culminates in the millennial reign of our Lord Jesus Christ and the final judgment at the great white throne and the uh, destruction of this universe and the coming new heavens and new earth. Father, all of what we're studying related to the ascension and session uh, relates to this and shows how magnificent your plan is and how marvelous the work of the Lord Jesus Christ is. And we pray that as we study these things we'd be able to to gain a fresh insight into our own role and your plan and how you are calling out the church today for a special task and special purpose within this overall framework. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we're studying the ascension, the church age, and your spiritual life. We'll start tying some of this into your spiritual life next week. But the foundation is really understanding the whole doctrine of the ascension, why it was necessary, how it fits into God's overall plan and purposes in terms of this split between the first advent of Christ and the second advent. So I thought for review today we would look at it a little differently and have about six or seven points of, of review. First point, in terms of the accomplishments of the ascension. The accomplishments of the ascension. The ascension validated and certified Christ's prophecy that he would go to the Father. It validated and certified Christ's prophecy that he would go to the Father. In John 14:28, he said, You heard that I said to you, I go away and will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. So in John 14, he is announcing... Once again, he's announced it before, 
that he's leaving. And part of that's John 14.1, which is a uh, passage that's familiar to most of us, that I go to prepare a place for you, that where I am, there you may be also. So it indicates that Jesus is doing something, something vital today in heaven at the right hand of God the Father that is directly related to our future destiny. Second point, the ascension itself is pictured in the various passages where it's covered with passive voice verbs indicating God the Father's acceptance and reception of His Son back in glory in heaven. It is a validation and acceptance of what Christ did on the cross, but it goes beyond that as we'll see in the Old Testament passages we look at this morning. Various passages that cover the ascension are Mark sixteen nineteen, Luke twenty four fifty one, Acts one two nine eleven and twenty two. Third point, the ascension itself is pictured as a rapture. There's about seven different raptures in the Scripture. We don't have time to cover that. You might have only thought about the rapture of the church, but there are other raptures in the Scripture, and the ascension is one of them. It's pictured as a rapture and thus a shadow or a type, that's a word that means a, a foreshadowing picture, of the future pre-tribulation rapture of the church. And we see this in Revelation 12.5. And she, that is Israel, a picture there of the woman, gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. That comes out, we'll see that later this morning, that comes out of Psalm 2.7, prophecy of the messianic rule during the millennial kingdom. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. So in this passage, the she is Israel. The giving birth to a son is the birth of Messiah. The child is the Lord Jesus Christ, who is caught up to God and to his throne. That's at the ascension. And the verb there in the Greek is harpazo. That means to snatch, to seize, or to take away. So... Hal Lindsey, when he wrote about the rapture in the book, Late Great Planet Earth, called it the Great Snatch. <laughs> but that's, that's the rapture. And that's the same Greek verb that's used over there in 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 to 17, describing the rapture. So this is just one of those raptures in the Scripture. So fourth, we see that the ascension completes... The strategic victory of Christ in the angelic conflict. Now, what I mean by this is, so often we talk about the strategic victory of Christ, we focus just on what happens on Golgotha when Christ is judged for our sins. And that, of course, is the foundational event. That is the most significant thing that, that happens. That is the centerpiece of all of history. But it's, in essence, only stage one in the strategic victory. The strategic victory has to do, the term strategy has to do with your overall plan and purpose. And in the strategic victory of the cross, evil is defeated, Satan is defeated, sin is paid for, and the foundation that for everything that happens in the future is laid. But it isn't completed. I mean, salvation's completed. But the overall, in terms of personal salvation, the, the foundation for our justification salvation, phase one, but the term salvation in the Bible is used in a much broader sense. In fact, most of the time the word sozo doesn't refer to what we would know as phase one salvation. 
But unfortunately, in evangelical Christian uh, slang, we've gotten to where we only think of salvation in terms of putting your faith alone in Christ alone so that you can have eternity in heaven. You know, we always hear the phrase, well, brother, are you saved? And that's what we talk about. But the Bible often uses, or more frequently uses, the word sozo, not just to refer to phase one salvation, but phase three glorification, or the completion of all three phases of salvation in God's plan for history. For example, in Hebrews 2.3, where uh, the writer asks the question, how shall we neglect so great a salvation? And often we hear that verse quoted in terms of justification, salvation. How can, how should, in other words, it's usually interpreted, how shall we neglect such a great thing that happened to us when we put our faith alone in Christ alone? But if you exegete the word sozo in the book of Hebrews, you find that the writer of Hebrews never uses sozo to refer to phase one. He always uses sozo to refer to the overall completion of the salvation package, which includes not only our redemption, regeneration that occurs at the instant of faith alone in Christ alone, but our ultimate glorification and the resolution of all things in terms of the salvation of all things and and the completion of the process in relation to, to everything in the universe by the end of the millennial kingdom. So the word sozo in the Bible is a word and and a word group that has a much broader impact and meaning than simply deliverance from sin, from the penalty of sin at the at, at phase one when we put faith alone in Christ alone. Which is one reason a number of these passage a number of passages get misunderstood. Uh, for example, the classic is in James two, fourteen and following uh, you say a man has faith, but he doesn't have work, and that faith save him. And so everybody wants to think that's phase one salvation when it's talking about phase two. Or you see Paul in Philippians chapter two say, "Work out your salvation with fear and trembling." Well, it's not ta- so that would, if that's talking about phase one, it would look like works, but it's not. It's talking about phase two. So this word group is frequently used in a broader sense than what we call justification, salvation. So I always make that distinction. So phase one of the uh, strategic victory is what lays the foundation for everything, the crucifixion, victory over the penalty of sin, which is spiritual death, the payment for our sin. In the second stage, there's the resurrection victory over the consequences of sin, the greatest consequence of which is physical death and all the physical ramifications that are outlined in, in Genesis chapter 3. Remember, there's a distinction between the judicial penalty for sin, which is spiritual death, which was enacted as soon as Adam sinned, he died spiritually. That was the judicial penalty of sin. Just as you, you, somebody commits murder, there's a judicial penalty. And if they are convicted, they are sent to prison. That is the judicial penalty. But there's a whole host of consequences that happen in relationship to their family, in relationship to their marriage, in relationship to their finances and their job and their career and their life. There's all sorts of ramifications that flow out of that judicial penalty. 
And that's the difference between spiritual death as outlined in Genesis 2.17, that if you eat from the fruit of the tree, the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. And what is outlined in relationship to the serpent, you'll crawl on the ground and eat dust all the days of your life. And to the uh, woman that you will have pain in childbirth and you will have a desire to usurp the authority of your husband. And then the husband is told that he is going to now have to earn his food by the sweat of his brow. It's not that he didn't have to engage in some sort of of labor or work prior to the fall, but it wasn't laborious or toilsome. It didn't involve the sweat of his brow. And now the nature is going to be a war against man, and it's going to the earth is going to put forth thorns and thistles, and there's always going to be this resistance from a fallen world to man's attempts to fulfill the uh, dominion mandate to rule over the fish of the sea and to subdue the earth and all of those all the factors related to Genesis 1 26 to 28 so we have to distinguish between those judicial consequences spiritual death and resur- and physical consequences so the resurrection shows that Christ has victory over the greatest of the physical consequences and therefore everything and then the third element is that with the ascension There is victory over Satan and his demonic armies. And Jesus Christ, in hypostatic union, in his humanity, is elevated to the right hand of God the Father and placed over all of the angels, all the principalities and all the powers. And as a man now, see, we have to understand this distinction between Jesus' authority as God, as the eternal second person of the Trinity, He's always had that authority over the angels and over creation. But in as a man now, he has, as it were, earned that privilege. And as a man now, he is elevated over the angels. And he has earned, through what he did on the earth, this inheritance. This is a message that underlies much of Hebrews. Let me see if I can illustrate this. In his deity, Jesus Christ has a has his innate authority as God over everything. And he is the Son of God for all eternity. That is a term that means he's fully God, full undiminished deity. It is as if, let's say, Prince William, who is the who one day will be the Prince of Wales, Prince William were to uh, as the Prince of Wales by birth he has an inheritance right to the throne of England. And let's say we were to be involved in a major world war and England were to be defeated and the monarchy abolished and they were taken over and dominated by some foreign power. Then, now Prince William by birthright is who he is as the King of England. But then he goes back, he joins an army as a private, works his way up through the ranks becomes general through his own qualifications and obedience and his own talent and ability and then leads an army back to reconquer England and he becomes king. So he's king now on the basis of two things. By birth he had that right, but then because the, it was that kingdom was lost, he went back, entered into the ranks, rose to the very top, and then took it back. So he has a right by conquest and a right by birth. 
that's the closest analogy I can come up with to what's going on in terms of the incarnation and what Jesus Christ is doing. The kingdom, earth, all of the creation is lost to the dominion of Satan with Adam's fall. And so God sends his son who enters into human history as a man and who as a man now is going to, as it were, rise through the ranks, pay the penalty for human sin in his humanity. And because he was perfectly obedient, there was no sin that qualified him to go to the cross. And at the cross, he he solves the whole sin and evil problem, which is at the root of the whole issue. And then at the ascension, he is now recognized as having accomplished the strategic victory, and he is elevated as a man over the angels, making him, which, which helps us understand the uniqueness of the Lord Jesus Christ, but also gives us a whole new picture of, of what God is doing in the angelic conflict and how, how complex and how remarkable our salvation is. That's why the writer of Hebrews says, how can we neglect so great a salvation? It's not just a salvation in terms of you're getting justified and not having to spend eternity in the lake of fire. It is a salvation that completely resolves the sin problem, the evil problem for all of eternity and recovers all of creation under the dominion of God. Now that is incredible. And what happens to us individually is only a part of that, but it's a vital part and we play a role in it uh, both now in the church age and in the coming millennial kingdom. Okay, fifth point in terms of the accomplishment of the ascension. The ascension elevates a man to the right hand of God the Father and the command post of the universe. See, man was created in Genesis 1, 26 to 28 to rule over the, to subdue the earth, to rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and the beast of the field and to bring everything under the dominion of God. But Adam failed. And even though man struggles to partially accomplish elements of that today, we'll never do it and we can never do it because we're fallen. But Jesus Christ does it for us. He accomplishes everything. So that's what the ascension is part of. He's at the command post of the universe. Ultimately, he will fulfill that initial dominion mandate, and he, as a man, subdues everything. A couple of passages, Acts 2, 32 and 33. This Jesus... God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, that's what happens at the ascension, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured forth this, which you both see and hear. Now, next time we'll come back and tie this together, but I want you to note in this passage the connection that Peter's making in that sermon on the day of Pentecost as they're introducing the church age. Jesus is exalted to the right hand of the Father so that what can happen? So that the Holy Spirit can come and be poured out into every believer in the church age to accomplish a whole new thing that's never before been seen in human history. And that flows from the ascension and session of Christ. Acts 2.34 then says, For it was not David who ascended into heaven... But he himself says, that is, David said in Psalm 110, verse 1, a passage that we'll look at in the course of this morning, if we don't run out of time. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. 
And what's that talking about? That's talking about the session. And what we see here, and what we'll see when we get to this verse, is that there is a, a time frame here. Set until. Set until. Now, what does that tell you? That tells you that right now Jesus Christ is doing one thing and God is doing something else. Jesus is sitting and God, is, the Father, is working through history to make his enemies a footstool. So that's the dynamic of what's going on today in the church age. Six point. The ascension marks the beginning of Christ's high priestly ministry. The ascension marks the beginning of his high priestly ministry. Seated at the right hand of God the Father, he is functioning today not as king, but as priest. See, he came at the first advent. We looked at this the last two weeks. He came at the first advent. He was expected to bring in the kingdom. The message of John the Baptist was what? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus' message was what? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is, is at hand. And uh, not to be left out, the disciples had a similar message. It was, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They all had the same message. What was the expectation of the Jews? Is that the Messiah is going to come and he's going to establish a literal, physical, geopolitical kingdom. But they forgot something. They forgot that the cross had to come before the crown. They had to be a suffering Messiah before you had a glorified Messiah. And that the sin and evil problem had to be resolved before you could establish uh, the kingdom. They had not understood the distinction in the Old Testament prophecies. So the kingdom, because the Jews rejected Christ as Messiah, the kingdom is what? give you a test this morning. Is it inaugurated or postponed? Postponed. It's not inaugurated. It's postponed. So that now Jesus isn't functioning as king. He's functioning as a priest. Now what does a priest represent? A priest represents people to God. And a priest, therefore, serves as a mediator. 1 Timothy 2.5 says there's only one God and one mediator, the man Christ Jesus. Notice it doesn't say there's one God, one mediator, and one mediatrix. It's just one mediator. One mediator. Not There's not a, a, a priestly mediate, mediatorship in this dispensation. You know, a formal priesthood of the uh, of clergy. There's one mediator. Pastors are not mediators. They are teachers of the word. But a priest is a mediator. That's why we don't have the, the individual priest or the believer. And we have a high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's our mediator. He partakes of both sides. You, know, you, get, you have a union controversy. And uh, you have your, you know, your, your members of the rank and file, members of the union, and they're having some kind of problem with management. And what do they need? They need somebody who comes in as a mediator who's going to stand for both sides. That's, that's what a mediator does. So the man Christ Jesus is a mediator because he's undiminished deity and he's true humanity united together in one person. That's your basic definition. And I left a word out there, and I'll come back to that in a minute, but... There's one person who partakes of both. That's why he's a priest today. And we'll see the kind of priesthood as we go through this. So that high priestly ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ begins 
while he is seated at the right hand of the Father. And that's his primary function today in relationship to the church. So what have we done so far as, we're, as we put together the pieces of the ascension? First week we answered the question, why the ascension? Why is because it was post, the kingdom was postponed. So since the kingdom was postponed, Jesus had to leave. He had to leave also so he could send the Holy Spirit, John 16, 7. What's the purpose of the ascension? The purpose of the ascension is because God is calling out a new people for his name to serve as a new function, new role in, in the future. And that's the church age. So the ascension is directly tied to the calling out of the church beginning at the day of Pentecost and extending until the end of the church age at the pre-tribulation rapture of the church. We looked at what happened. Physically, what happened? Jesus just sort of blasts off into space. I remember when I was second grade or third grade watching the first Mercury astronauts taking off, watching Alan Shepard go off into space and just how remarkable that was. And see, we've all grown up pretty much watching these images. We all lived in an era of flight where we've seen planes fly and we've seen uh, rockets take off and missiles take off and we've seen uh, all kinds of things like that. But these folks at the, in Acts chapter 1 had never seen any, any of this. So all of a sudden Jesus just takes off through the heavens and the terms are literal, physical, spatial. He's just going through the, through the uh, atmosphere and, the cl- and a cloud just absorbs him as the a sign of God's acceptance. And the past, various passages of Scripture we looked at last time indicate that he is elevated above the angels so that he, as a man, is now over the angels. He has earned that through the, what he did on the cross. Then we went to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Is that the condenser blowing there? Oh, it's, there's always something. Always something. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 4, Paul talks about the fact that Jesus ascended to heaven and he quotes from Psalm 68. And we looked at that last, last time. Psalm 68, 18 was a picture. Of the Psalm 68 actually was a victory hymn written by David when he brought the Ark of the Covenant to the threshing floor of, of Jeruna in Jerusalem. And as and what has happened here, and these are three critical chapters to understand, in 2 Samuel, we'll talk about these again tonight, 2 Samuel 5, 6, and 7. 2 Samuel chapter 5, David finally defeats the Jebusites and takes control of Jerusalem. Now, why is that important? It's important because starting with Joshua, the children of Israel have been trying to take control of this land that God has given them. And there's still pockets of resistance from various Canaanite forces because they they compromised, they didn't carry out holy war like they should, and they began to compromise and let various Canaanite groups live. And because they lived, they infected the incoming Jewish population with their paganism, their idolatry, their their worship of the fertility gods, all of that kind of uh, stuff was going on. And so it took about 400 years before they finally captured Jerusalem. 
And Jerusalem is the high point, our high point in Israel. It's up high. That's why whenever you read in the scripture that they went up to Jerusalem, the Bible's not talking about going north to Jerusalem. You know, in English, we talk about north is up and south is down. But in the Bible, up and down are related to altitude, not direction. So you always went up to Jerusalem, and then if you were going from Jerusalem to Jericho, you went down to Jericho. If you were going from Jerusalem to Hebron, you went down to Hebron, but you went up to Jerusalem because you're going up and down uh, physically. And so you have the, the conquest, finally, of the, the capital, what will be the capital, Jerusalem, and once you have this, now you have a place where God is going to designate for his presence on Mount Zion. He's declared Mount Zion to be his holy hill. This is, this is the temple mount. And God declares that to be his holy hill. And David has taken it. So now they're going to have this victory procession where they take the Ark of the Covenant symbolizing the presence of God up to the site, uh, the future site of the temple. And this is a picture of God having had victory over all their enemies. And so Paul comes along and borrows that whole imagery from the Old Testament and says this is the same kind of thing that Jesus accomplished in his ascension. He ascended on high and gave gifts to men. So he connects the giving of spiritual gifts to the ascension of Jesus Christ, but he uses Old Testament imagery to express that, that this is once again this whole concept of victory and elevation and authority over everything else. And then we pretty much stopped there, and I said we have to look at three other passages in the Old Testament in order to capture this picture of the ascension and to understand its significance. And so we will look at Daniel 7 in our beginning today and then we'll look at Psalm 2 and then the Davidic covenant and then Psalm 110. Now obviously I'm not exegeting every word in these Psalms. We wouldn't have time for that one. I want to hit the high point of these passages because this will give you a picture of, of just the, the, the impressive magnificence of God's plan and what's accomplished in the ascension and session and the fact that it has a it, it, it all ties into Christ's future role as Messiah and millennial ruler. Now we saw last time, we saw in the last couple of lessons uh, the ascension which took place over here on the Mount of Olives which is this area over here, you can see this is a little bit of a relief map. Uh, this is a Mount of Olives. It's not a mountain like you'd find in Colorado. We're not talking about a 12,000 or 14,000 foot peak. We're talking more like something you'd find out around Fredericksburg. Just, just a high hill in between the Kidron Valley. And to the west is the Temple Mount. And so Jesus leaves from Jerusalem, crosses the Kidron Valley, goes up the Mount of Olives, following the same path that the Shekinah glory followed uh, in, when Ezekiel saw it, leaving the temple in about 590 B.C. And so Jesus follows that same path and ascends from the Mount of Olives. What's interesting is when he comes back, he's going to touch down to the Mount of Olives and retrace his steps back into Jerusalem. Just shows how the Bible always fits together. 
and there's all and every little detail has significance. Okay, we're looking. Just I thought I'd just put this little chart together to give us an understanding of the the a basic map of what I'm what I'm doing. Psalm 68 tells us, or is used in the New Testament to describe the ascension as a victorious conquest of the enemy. The enemy is strategically defeated when Jesus Christ pays the penalty for sin on the cross and is completed with the ascension. So all of this pictures Jesus taking the high ground. We'll come back and talk about the importance in the military of taking the high ground next week on Memorial Day. I just love it when a plan comes together and get to talk about the military on the on Memorial Day. Daniel 7.14 is the next key section that we're going to look at, which also talks about the military conquest of the Son of Man. Then we're going to tie that to Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. So all of this fits together. And one of the things I hope to challenge people with when I teach on this is a recognition of how dependent the New Testament is on the Old Testament. And if you're sitting out there scratching your head and saying, you know, I never heard all this stuff before, I just want to hope you're taking up the challenge that this means you need to be reading your Bible. You need to be reading that Old Testament on a regular basis so you can understand it and know who's who and what's what and where's where and just be biblically literate. You know, we as believers we're called upon to, to know the Word of God, not just to know doctrinal principles, but to know the Word of God. First Peter three sixteen, Peter says that we are to be ready to give an answer for the hope that is in us. And that's not just if you look at that word there, it's the, the Greek word ap- apologia, which came into English as apology, but its meaning in Greek was to give a well reasoned well-argued, content-filled legal defense for something. It's not just standing up in the courtroom and say, well, we got to believe Jesus because the Bible says so. That's how most people want to witness. And, you know, if I were to ask you to give me two reasons why the rapture should come before the tribulation, you should be able to do that. You have to give an answer for the hope that's in you. Hope's an eschatological term. Our blessed hope is the return of Christ at the rapture. So in the most bare-bones exegesis of the passage, we should be able to give an answer for the hope that's in you. But I would guess that nobody here can do that. You probably can't even give me one reason why you think the rapture occurs before the tribulation. And see, that's an indictment on us. We become biblically illiterate. We may be doctrinally sophisticated, but we're biblically illiterate, and we can't communicate to folks. And yet we live in a world that is so, so, so such a desert in terms of biblical knowledge, we're the ones with the truth. We need to be so well trained that we can give the answer to people and use the word and say, okay, look here. Look at what it says. Turn to 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 to 18. Now that talks about the rapture, but when does it occur? Well, let's go to Daniel 9. Talk about that. See, we need to be biblically equipped. And see, that's one of the reasons God gave the gift to pastor teacher. I'm getting ahead of myself. And Ephesians 4, 11 and following is he gave the gift of pastor teacher to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. And part of that work of the ministry is being able to give an answer for the hope that's in you. So when your next door neighbor says, you know, there's something a little bit different about you. Tell me about it. That you're able to, in a, in a clear, concise way, explain what you believe and why you believe it. 
And I find that a lot of Christians just want to tell you what you believe. But see, the Bible says you've got to be able to tell you why you believe it. You're not a cult member. Cult members just tell you what they believe. We're members of the body of Christ. We need to be able to explain why we believe it. Turn your Bibles to Daniel 7. Daniel 7 is one of those crucial, crucial Old Testament prophecies. Crucial Old Testament prophecy that goes through the whole panorama the whole panorama of history. And in the very first of the, of the chapter, Daniel has a, 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 has a vision and he ex- starts explaining this vision. I saw in my vision by night, behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. The four winds are stirring up the great sea and four great beasts came up from the sea and the sea represents the the chaos of the Gentile nations and the first beast is a lion and this lion represents the as eagle's wings and it represents the uh, Neo-Babylonian or Chaldean Empire and then the next uh, image is a bear this is a lopsided bear it's raised up on one side this bear represents the Medo-Persian Empire of the ancient world, and then the third beast is a four uh, four headed leopard, four headed leopard that has uh, wings on its back, and this leopard represents the later Greek Empire under Alexander the Great, and then there rises a fourth beast that is great and terrible, and it has huge iron teeth and is devouring, breaking in pieces, trampling the residue with its feet in in verse seven. And so he contemplates this, and these beasts represent the progression of empires in the times of the Gentiles. Times of the Gentiles is a technical prophetic term that begins in 586 B.C. that Jerusalem is trampled underfoot by the Gentile nations. That's when the southern kingdom went out under divine discipline in 586 B.C. when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple. And even though you had a partial return of Jews to the land 70 years later, it was a partial return. They never had the glory they did before. But Jerusalem was always in some way under the heel of some foreign power. For much of that time period, they're under the heel of various remnants of the Greek Empire, whether it's the Ptolemies or the Seleucids, and you have the uh, all of the anti-Semitism of Antiochus Epiphanes, which eventually led to the Maccabean Revolt in that period. But even then, they're always having to pay tribute to some group, and then along came the Romans. So Jerusalem is always living at the behest or under some sort of protection or supervision by some foreign Gentile power all the way up until 8070 when they are destroyed by the Romans and they go out under the fifth cycle of discipline which is still in effect. The Roman Empire, even though it dissolves in the West in the 7th century and in the uh, East in the 11th century, their ideological her- heritage continues down through today. 
If you go back and you read early American history in the 1700s, the ideal culture, the ideal civilization, the ideal for law was the Roman Republic, and that was taught in all of the all the schools, all the colleges in the U.S. By 1800, in the early 1800s, between 1800 and 1815, it shifts, and the ideal became Greek democracy. Isn't that interesting? At the early, it was the Roman Republic initially, then shifts to Greek democracy. But it's these ideas that come from this lineage of the kingdom of man. I don't have time to go through, but each one of these kingdoms contributed certain philosophical things to the history of man that are still in effect today. So we're still living under the kingdom of man. And one other thing I want you to notice is that each of these kingdoms, which in the eyes of secular historians represent the very best that man has accomplished, are pictured from God's viewpoint as bestial. They are bestial. They are domineering. They are ravenous. All of these creatures that are used here picture very aggressive animals that strike fear in the hearts of man. That's how God looks at these great kingdoms man has produced. Now, it's easy for us to get enamored with with many of the accomplishments of these kingdoms. But this gives us God's perspective. And what God then said, what 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 God then reveals to Daniel, is how these kingdoms are destroyed, and God establishes His kingdom, and that comes in Daniel seven verse nine. Daniel is the first person speaking here. I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. Now, who's the Ancient of Days? This is God the Father or God the Son? It's God the Father. The Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A river of fire was flowing out from him in verse 10. Thousands upon thousands were attending him. It's a picture very similar to that of the throne of God in Revelation 4 and 5. In fact, it's the same scene. Myriads upon myriads were standing before him. That's all the angels. And the court sat and books were open. And I kept looking in the night visions, verse 13, and behold with the clouds of heaven. Where have we heard clouds before? We've heard that with, associated with the ascension. See, clouds are often associated with the presence of God. With the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. See, that's why I said Ancient of Days has to be the Father, because in verse 13, you have another personage that comes up to the Ancient of Days. And this is the Lord Jesus Christ. One like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. Now, I want you to notice something here. The best of human history is presented as a beast, four beasts. But the kingdom of Messiah is presented as what man is really supposed to be. He's the son of man. Notice a contrast between the man as a true human, untainted by sin, versus the bestial nature of the kingdoms that man produces. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. Okay, so what happens here? We have a scene where there is a courtroom scene and the Ancient of Days is sitting as if he is the supreme judge 
And one comes before him who is like a son of man. Now this is the only time this term son of man is used in the Old Testament. The only time it's used in the Old Testament. And this becomes the basis for its usage in the New Testament. And in the New Testament it is used 86 times in the New Testament. It is used 83 times by the Lord Jesus Christ. It's used a couple of times in Acts, and it's used a couple of times in the book of Revelation. But the Lord Jesus Christ uses it 83 times to refer to himself. Now, what in the world do you think he's doing? He's telling everybody, look at Daniel 7. This is who I am. I am the Son of Man who will come to establish the kingdom. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him the Son of Man was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. Now, when does this happen? When does this take place? This takes place, I think this, this is a summary of what happens in the tribulation period. And I don't have time to go into it today, but the picture that you have in Revelation 4 and 5 is that all the angels, just same, same scene, all the angels, myriads upon myriads, thousands upon thousands, all surrounding the throne of God and singing holy, holy to the Lord God Almighty. And then one, somebody comes out with a seal, a, a, a scroll, a scroll. And this scroll has seven seals on it. And it's all sealed up. And they say, who's worthy to open the seal? And this cry goes out, who's worthy to open the seal? And no one, John says, no one can be found worthy to open the scroll. And it's so serious. It's such an overwhelming situation that the Greek says that John burst out in tears, weeping uncontrollably. Because no one can be found who can open the scroll. And then the Lamb comes forward. I mean, this is one of the most phenomenal scenes you get in the Scripture. Then the Lamb comes forward, and He is worthy. Why is He worthy? Because He went to the cross. See how all this ties together. It's the same scene you have here. The Lamb is the Son who comes forward, and He takes that scroll. And that scroll is the title deed to the earth that is being given to Him as the future King. And this is the same thing we have in Daniel 7. To him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. So what's, if you just look at Daniel 7.14, there is a point in time in which he is given the kingdom. What's he doing before that? He doesn't have the kingdom, does he? There's a point, there, there's a point or a period when he doesn't have the kingdom. Then something happens and he's given the kingdom. And what's going to happen in the kingdom? That's the next phrase. That all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. This is a multi-ethnic, international, multinational community. Where do they come from? Where do they come from? They come because during the church age, what are we to do? Matthew 28 18 through 20. We're to go to every tribe, every nation, communicate the word. God is building a multi-ethnic kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. Okay, now, I was asked a good question last week. Earlier I mentioned, and I, left, I, I mentioned I left a word out in the definition of the hypostatic union. The hypostatic union, it should be familiar with you. I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but it's the union 
of undiminished deity with true humanity in one person what? Forever. Now that last little word's a word that a lot of people don't quite grasp. And and it hits you. Forever. That means Jesus Christ is a man forever. And this is one of the reasons you say it. Who's here? He's the Son of Man and He's given dominion that will not pass away and will not be destroyed. As what? As the Son of Man. Not as the Son of God, but as the Son of Man in His humanity. Okay, we'll tie that to some other things. So what do we see here? Every First point, every nation might serve Him in His kingdom. It's not restricted to a Jewish kingdom. Now, who's Daniel writing to here? He's writing to Jews. So it's, there's this clear hint here that, man, something is going to happen that it's going to be trans-Jewish national. It's going to just explode and be international. So we've got a whole new dimension coming up. Second, to him was gi- the phrase to him was given indicates that a time frame exists before this when he doesn't have dominion, when he doesn't have this glory, and he doesn't have a kingdom. Contrary to the amillennialists and the postmillennialists and the progressive dispensationalists who all think he's having some kind of kingdom today. Verse 18, Daniel said, But the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all the ages to come. And the word there, I don't have it, didn't put it in. The word there is uh, Kaddish for saints, the holy ones. Now, see, that doesn't have to refer to Old Testament saints or New Testament saints. It just refers to believers. So it incorporates, without being too specific, it can incorporate what will happen in the Millennial Kingdom, which has both Jewish believers and an emphasis on Israel, and church-age believers who are distinct from Israel. And he will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever. As what? As Son of Man in hypostatic union. Because he has to remain in hypostatic union because he's reigning it as the Son of David and the Son of Man. So Matthew 19.28 says, Truly I say to you that you have followed me in the regeneration. When the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So you see, he's talking to the twelve apostles. Of course, they're going to lose one, but he'll be replaced by Paul. When the Son of Man comes, he will, you will sit on twelve thrones, the apostles, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. This shows the elevation of the church over Israel in the Millennial Kingdom and their position ruling and reigning with him. Third point from Daniel is the establishment of the kingdom is yet future and will be accomplished through a truly human founder and leader who will be the worldwide leader. He's a truly human leader as opposed to, in contrast to, all the non-human leaders, non-human leaders meaning everybody, including George Bush, all human leaders of human empires in the church age are all part of this bestial thing. It doesn't matter if one of them happens to be a believer or not. The overall character and nature of human empires in this age until the coming of Messiah because of the corruption is always pictured as bestial. That's why we fight over politics so much. As believers, we keep we understand what the ideal should be, but we ain't going to get there ever because there's all political systems are corrupted by fallen man. 
And our hope is not in politics, folks. Our hope is not in any particular political leader. Our hope is in Jesus Christ. And no, and, and no human government, no human is going to resolve the problems in this age. Does that mean that we ought to go bury our heads in the sand? No. But we ought to recognize that there's always going to be this tension because that's part of the cosmic system. Okay, let's skip over to Psalm 2. Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2. And in the next short, short ten minutes, I'm going to go through these psalms. Psalm 2. This is a picture of the royal Son of God reigning. It is a prophetic psalm. It is one of the most significant psalms because it is quoted more than any other psalm in the New Testament. That ought to give us a clue that the writers of the New Testament many times go back to either verse 1 or verse 4 in Psalm 2 to to quote from it. Psalm 2, portions of it are quoted four times in the New Testament. Verse 7 is quoted three times. What did I say? I said four, but it should be verse 7 is quoted. Uh, I was thinking Psalm 110. I'm sorry. Psalm 110 is the most quoted psalm, Psalm, which we'll get to before we finish. Uh, Psalm 2 is quoted four times in the New Testament. Verse 7 is quoted three times in the New Testament in Acts 13.33, Hebrews 1.5, and Hebrews 5.8. And verse 9 is quoted in Revelation 2.27. Actually, I've made an error here in my notes. It's quoted five times. It's quoted in Revelation 2.27 and Revelation 12. Just note that Revelation 12, I think it's verse 5, but we'll, we'll hit it again in a minute. It takes place at the, the, the time frame here. It's really the tribulation period. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? It is a picture of the mass of humanity in rebellion against God. And they're in conspiracy to try to overthrow God's authority. The kings of the earth take their stand, verse 2, and the rulers take counsel together. Notice the worldwide alliance against God. Against the Lord and against His anointed. So what do we see here? We see two personages again, don't we? We had the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man in Daniel 7. And here we have the Lord and His anointed, that is the Messiah. The rulers take counsel, and here's what the rulers say in verse 3. This is their conspiracy. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Their view is that God's authority, God's word, is just something that restricts us. We can't have real freedom. It just binds us. We just hate it, and they're resistant to it. Let's revolt against God. In contrast, he who sits on the heavens laughs. God is pictured anthropopathically here as just laughing, scoffing at man. Who in the world do they think they are? These little inconsequential nothings. Then he will speak to them in his anger. Anger, of course, is an anthropopathism uh, referencing the expression of God's judicial condemnation of man. Then he, the Father, you've got to watch who's speaking where here. This can be very confusing in this psalm. Then he, the Father, will speak to them in his wrath, judicial wrath, and terrify them in his fury, saying... So who's speaking here? The Father. When is he speaking? 
That's that word then. It's the Hebrew word az, which is a temporal demonstrative adverb indicating a particular time. He doesn't make this decree until after what's already happened, after the nations and the kings have conspired against him. So it's not now. It's waiting for this international conspiracy to take place. Then the Father will speak to him in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, the Father... I have installed my king upon Zion. Now, who's my king? That's the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who else? The Davidic king. We've got to tie this to the Davidic covenant. God promised that David would have a physical descendant, the son of David, who would sit on his throne forever. Now, what does that also tell you? That tells you that he has to be in hypostatic union forever, doesn't it? Because if he drops his humanity, he's no longer the son of David. So, once again, the, the, the Davidic covenant indicates that, that the, this future king has to have a divine element to him. I mean, that's embedded in that promise. When you have a promise that you'll have descendants that will rule forever, you either have an unending line of succession, or you have somebody at the end of the line who lives forever. So that implies deity. But as for me, God the Father, I have installed my king upon Zion. And that word for install is a Hebrew word, nasak, which means to install or to inaugurate a leader. When is the king inaugurated? After this conspiratorial revolt. He's, we, we didn't have the kingdom inaugurated yet. We're not in the kingdom. We're not even in a millennial ghetto. We're not in an already partially formed of the kingdom. It's, it's future. And the king is installed where? Upon Zion. Not the right hand of God in heaven, not some spiritual form, but on Zion, which is the, the holy hill of Jerusalem, the temple mount. I've installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. So we see this is grounded ultimately in the Abrahamic covenant, which promised Israel a specific piece of real estate, expanded in the land covenant in Deuteronomy 30. There was a promise of seed, an eternal seed to Abraham, which is fulfilled in the, or expanded in the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And then, of course, the blessings fulfilled in the new covenant. But we're focusing on that centerpiece right here, the Davidic covenant. That's the foundation for understanding Psalm 2. And in, let me just skip down to look at verse 13, the lower one here. He shall build a house for my name, and I, God, will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That's the core promise of the Davidic covenant. Promising David an eternal dynasty. That's my king in Psalm 2. Verse 16, 2 Samuel 7, 16. Your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. Okay, back at Psalm 2, 7. I will surely tell the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Well, when does this happen? Actually, the phrase means in the Hebrew, Today I declare that you are my begotten one. The form for the word declare could be taken as a cow, which is indicative mood, or it could be taken hifil, which is causative, which is the idea of declaration. And I back that up by its use in Romans 1.4. Today I declare that you are my begotten one. Now this declaration, folks, this is where we're getting some really neat stuff. This declaration is not a verbal pronouncement, or it's not simply a verbal pronouncement. This declaration is a legal contract. It is a legal contract. 
There is a declaration that is laid out. Today I declare through this contract that you are my begotten one. And then it's part of the fact that... at, at See, okay, well, let me back up. I got, I got a little ahead here. We, I, I got to reemphasize who's speaking. In verse 6, it's God the Father. But in verse 7, the speaker changes to the Lord Jesus Christ, the King. The King says, that's being established, says, I will tell of the decree of the Lord. I, the Son, will tell the decree of the Lord, that is the Father. He, the Father, said to me, the Son, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. So what's happening is, at this time period in, in Psalm 2.6, when you have the, the installation of the king, the king says, I'm going to tell you now of this decree that was made earlier. Okay? This decree is this legal contractual document that I'm talking about. I'll tell you about this decree the Lord made, and as part of that decree, he declared through this legal document, today I declare you my begotten one. Ask of me, and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance. So the inheritance, the idea there is possession. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations as your possession. So what's this decree have to do with? This decree has to do with the nations becoming the possession of the king. The decree is a title deed to the Messiah for the earth. The earth was lost when Adam fell and Satan became the legitimate prince of the power of the earth. He offers Jesus the kingdoms of the earth in the temptations, Matthew 4. That was a legitimate offer because Satan was the ruler of the kingdoms of the earth. Jesus, that was why the temptation. Do you want the kingdom by just taking it from me or do you want to go the hard way through the cross? And Jesus said, I'm going to go the hard way through the cross and stay obedient to the Father. So here's the, t- the timeline that we see in Psalm 2, just to make it clear. The today that he's referring to at the end, when he's installed, he says, I will tell you to, of the decree of the Lord when he said, Today I declare you my son. That took place in the past. The installation is taking place here at the second coming, but he's referring back to a time in the past when he made this formal legal decree in between according to verse 8 he is to ask the father for the nations as his inheritance so what's Jesus doing right now as part of his high priestly role he's praying and asking God for the nations as his inheritance it's a waiting period he's not the king and when eventually he will rule the nations. Verse 9, You shall break them with a rod of iron, you shall shatter them like earthenware. That's what happens at the second coming when he comes back to defeat the nations. Okay, that's the framework. Now, let me skip ahead a minute. Cut through a couple of passages here. because These are the passages I mentioned earlier that talk about the rule of iron, Revelation 2, 26 and 27 where it talks about we'll come back with him when he establishes this rule of iron in Revelation 2.27 and then Revelation 12.5 says and she gave birth to a son, a male child who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron okay, that's when he comes back to quash this rebellion but what's he got in his hand? 
What's he got in his hand? This is so fun. What he's got in his hand is his title deed. He's saying, I'm going to tell you of this decree. This decree. Now you go to Revelation 4 and 5, and what's happening? Why is John weeping in Revelation 4? Because they brought out this scroll that's all sealed up. But who's worthy to open it? It's the title deed to the earth. Who's worthy to open it? The Lamb. This is tie, it ties all these passages together. Now the Lamb is given the inheritance, and in order to this, this rule of iron where he's quashing the rebellion, what's he doing? He starts opening those seals. And you have seven sealed judgments at the beginning of the, of the tribulation, and the seven sealed judgments o- opens up the trumpet judgments. And you go through the seven trumpet judgments, and the seventh trumpet judgments opens up to the bowl judgments, and that's everything that happens leading up to, to the Battle of Armageddon. And this is when he comes back and establishes his rule. And it's great stuff. I mean, you just got to tie it all together to see how this relates. And we come back with him to rule as kings and priests over the kingdom. So when we conclude Psalm 2, we see that the future king is going to be divine. He is my son. Uh, When he is installed, he's given full honors. Uh, Let me see. This is a better first point. The royal divine king is accepted by God, installed with full honors in his position. But there's a delay in establishment of that position. He's got to wait. He's got to ask for the nations to be given him as his inheritance. Third point. When the king returns, he'll rule with a reign of iron. So what, let's put Daniel 7 and Psalm 2 together. Daniel 7, we have the, the Son of Man returning to establish a multi-ethnic kingdom. But before he gets the kingdom, there was a time period when he didn't have it. Psalm 2 tells us about that. It's a time period when he's waiting to be given the nations as his inheritance. And what he's doing is, in, is over in... Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool. That's what he's doing right now. That's the session. And then in verse 4, The Lord has sworn and he will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Another reason why the hypostatic union is forever. You're a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, it's not according to the order of Levi or the Aaronic priesthood. Why? Because Jesus is from the tribe of Judah. It's after a a superior order of priests, Hebrews tells us, the Melchizedekian priesthood. Melchizedek was a Gentile priest king, a royal priest. That's the pattern for the Lord's uh, priesthood, so that it's a priesthood that applies not just to Israel, but to all nations, because it's not based on a Jewish priesthood, but a Gentile priesthood that predates the Aaronic priesthood. And that priesthood functions and operates in relationship to our spiritual life in the church age. And that ascension, going back to that verse I quoted at the beginning in Acts chapter 2, that ascension is related to his sending the Holy Spirit. And that's why this Jesus is able to transform the strategic victory into a strategic end run around Satan in the angelic conflict to produce something that was never foreseen or anticipated in human history in terms of the church age, the church, the body of Christ, and the spiritual life of each individual believer. And we'll come back and talk about that next time with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. You want to come up and close?
One thing before we close in prayer. Um, there's different areas of capacity out there with what you can understand according to your level of spiritual growth. We all have the great system of perception as believers and we can understand the whole realm of doctrine. Uh, Robbie is opening up a whole panorama that most believers don't, don't even know is there. And I encourage you strongly to stick with it. You may be able to have understood everything he said and you're saying, wow, this is terrific. Or you may have been able to get bits and pieces. You, they may not all fit together perfectly as yet, but you see that there's something there. Or you might really be confused and, and not know anything other than God really has a plan and something really is going on and I'd like to be a part of it. Now, the Bible says that you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. That's what God is telling us. And I am exhorting you and encouraging you to take whatever bit of pieces that you have and build on those. We have tapes of uh, Robbie's series here. We'll offer them to you if you want to go over them again. If you have questions, you need to talk among each other. You can talk to me about any questions. But the main thing is just don't say this is over my head and just discount it and go about your way. Because what we're studying here can change a lot of things in your life. Your life is more than just a summary of details that you have to handle every day. This is what life is really about. You're getting a glimpse of the big picture. So I just wanted to say that so that you will continue to focus on and think about and concentrate about these things. These are the deep things of God. And you can't just hear one pop in a series and think, oh, well, I've got that, or if I don't com completely have it, it's inconsequential. Let me get on about the details of my life. These are paramount that you recognize them for what they are. And they will change your life. Let's close our uh, eyes and bow our heads now. If you're a person here that hasn't believed in Jesus Christ, then that is the most important thing today. I'd like you to know that you can accept Him by simply faith alone in Christ alone. Inaudibly, you can make the decision to accept Christ and depend upon His work rather than your own works in order to not only go to heaven but be a part of this grand phenomenal plan that God has for all of mankind and that He indeed will give you that hope that Robbie was talking about that confidence and so much more and you can do that simply inaudibly by telling God at this time that you're believing in Jesus Christ and we thank you, Heavenly Father, for your word, the great system of perception whereby we can understand it, and the great plan that we are seeing unveiled before us. And we pray that you will help us to keep the big picture in mind, that you will challenge us and encourage us to stay the course, to keep acquiring more knowledge about who and what you are, and that we can be a part of this great unfolding. We pray all of this in the name that is above all names, even Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.